Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, sometimes even videos, all to be found on our website londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and then select the episode that you fancy. If you enjoy what we do, then you will love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. Joining me in the studio today is City of London tour guide Ian McDermott. Hello, Ian. Hello, Hazel. This week's episode is about the Port of London. And as that's a massive subject, we're going to be focusing on the Tudor period, which is a bit strange, isn't it, Ian? And we don't often hear about the Port of London in Tudor times. No, it's surprising that when you read general books on London, and this applies to both the 16th century and the Middle Ages, you can often read um, textbooks and they hardly make any mention of the port at all, uh, which is quite extraordinary given its absolute importance to London and its absolute importance to uh, England as well. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe the the sources aren't great, but as we're about to uh, suggest, the sources are in fact quite good for the first half of Elizabeth's reign, which is what we're going to be concentrating on. In particular, we've got, at this time, we've got the beginnings of accurate pictures of London. And in particular, we have the first maps being made. I say maps, uh, what we've got, the two main sources, as it were, for getting uh, an image of London are the Agas map and something called the Cuitatis Orbis Terrarum map, or the Cuitatis map for short. And Cuitatis Orbis Terrarum is Latin for maps of the world. So it's it's an atlas. And this is an atlas that's produced in 1572 in Cologne. And within its hundreds of maps of cities from around the world, it includes one of London. And the Agas map is a large map made of made from wood wood blocks i should say that the kiwitatis map is a copper plate it's it's made from two copper plates and formed uh, two leaves within the the atlas you'd open the atlas atlas and you'd have this this map of london the the agas map is, is bigger it's about um, 2 meters i think in length and was made up of eight wood blocks and because wood block engraving is cruder than engraving on metal uh, and metal engraving is much more expensive and the plates last a lot longer and um, the agas map itself is a little bit crude and one of the things that when you see reproductions of it you can see the 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 joins between between the wood blocks so it's a a little bit of a crude thing but anyway these are our two earliest images of london Um, the agas map dates somewhere probably between 1561 and 1571 one interesting feature of both of these is that they both include the spire of st paul's which uh, was a very notable landmark and which was destroyed by uh, lightning in 1561 they both derive from an original which is largely but not completely lost and that original must have been a tremendously expensive product uh, it's known as the copper plate map and we've got three surviving copper plates which is 
one of the reasons we know about it. And it looks as though these these two maps that I've spoken are about are derived from that. And as I say, this is hugely important because it's the first kind of accurate map of London. Yeah, and when you say about the three copper plants, you mean the three out of the 15 that survived? Yes, and also, so three out of 15, and also they're very badly eroded um, because they they obviously were used a lot for printing, and also they've been reused. So the reason they've survived is that people uh, repurposed the plates and used them for plate for making a painting on the other side. So th- this is why the three plates have survived. Um, but anyway, enough has come down to show that this was an incredibly expensive thing. It might well have been produced by Hanseatic merchants in the 1550s. Uh, they might have been presenting an, an elaborate gift to Philip II, who was the consort of Queen Mary, lobbying for a renewal of their, their privileges. When we say maps, the Kiwitatis map is the one that's closest to a map in the sense that the view is largely map-like. I say largely because it actually does your head in uh, when you look at it because the perspective moves around. Uh, the Agus map uh, isn't by Agus and it isn't a map. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that historians love talking about. Um, so Agus was a surveyor uh, in the reign of Elizabeth and the map was for a long time attributed to him but it the, the, yeah it, it wasn't by him and it's not really a map because it's done as a kind of um, view from an angle looking down at London but nevertheless they're both very very accurate uh, in terms of reproducing what was there and therefore they're extremely interesting and dominating both obviously is the River Thames and you can see details of the Thames and um, one of the things is that the London Bridge which We'll come on to a little bit later on, I suspect, uh, to downriver of the Thames to the east. You can see the Thames is quite well populated with large sailing ships. And then upriver from the the Thames, things change because you've got small boats, um, not sailing ships. And one nice little detail is that obviously deriving from the copper plate map, there's a little detail of a barge being pulled. And that that is the the royal barge uh, making its way uh, upriver. And I'll add links to these images um, in the show notes for episode 95. I should say that the, the names uh, Agas map and Kiwitatis, particularly the full Latin Kiwitatis Orbis Terrarum map, might be sound a bit off-putting. But I think a lot of people, if they see the images, they'll, they'll recognise them because they're very well known, aren't they, they, Hazel? Yes, indeed. I even have one as my screensaver. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that provides no end of fascination to anybody interested in in the history of London. You can look up buildings and streets, and yes, it, well worth having a look at. But anyway, we're, we're focusing on the on the on the on the river. So you mentioned we have two sources. If the maps are one, what's the other? Well, the other one is a major reform of the customs that's begun under uh, Queen Mary and then is carried on into the beginning of Elizabeth's reign. And the key figure here is William Paulet, who is the treasurer. He's a great political survivor. So he becomes Lord Treasurer under uh, under Edward VI, is Lord Treasurer under Queen Mary, and then is Lord Treasurer again under Elizabeth and, uh, until his death. And the customs are an enormous source of revenue to the crown. So they're extremely important. Um, but there were two sort of main problems with them. Uh, one that, that, that Paul at face, so you've got this major source of revenue, but the problem is that there's an awful lot of evasion going on. Um, and the uh, w- evasion takes two forms. One is smuggling when you don't pay any duties at all. And the other problem is corruption amongst the officials uh, administering the, the customs. 
The second problem is that the way the customs work is that they are mainly an ad valorem tax. So an ad valorem tax is a bit like VAT today. It's a percentage of the value of them. And they introduce a book of rates. The first book of rates is introduced in 1509, and it's not really updated. They, they do issue a new one in 1545, but they don't really make the they don't really update the prices. And the way customs work, the, the, two main source, the two main sources of custom revenue were tonnage and poundage. So tonnage is a tax on liquids coming in tons or barrels, most importantly wine, but also oil. And then poundage is a tax on uh, what we would call dry goods in whatever containers. Nails, for example, were imported in tons, but you pay an ad valorem tax on the value of the nails. And the ad valorem tax was one shilling in the pound. Before decimalization, there were 20 shillings in the pound. So a tax of one shilling in the pound would be put into modern parlance as a a 5% tax. And the problem with that is if you're not updating the the books frequently, and they're not because it's a huge, huge task, inflation quickly uh, erodes the value of of, of the tax. And when Paulet comes, he issues a new book of rates in uh, 1559. And when he does it, the the value of the goods pretty much doubles in all the cases, almost doubles. And the other thing he does is he greatly extends the the list of things that the customs cover, the, the list of products. And... Finally, in terms of his reforms, leading from these reforms, uh, we have a great picture of, of, of how London looked and operated. Because one of the things that he does uh, is he reforms the system of legal keys. A legal key is where you can legitimately load and unload cargoes, and your goods can then be inspected by customs. Now, before Paulet's time, there were, in theory, three legal keys. They were at uh, Queen High, Dowgate, and Billingsgate. But in effect, they used a lot more. And people were unloading and loading goods all the way up and down the river. And when I say all the way up and down the river, um, it includes the South Bank, which w- was not included in Paulet's system. So that you could, uh, for example, you could they were unloading goods at Deptford, Woolwich, Greenwich, all along the North Bank and then all along in, in the, the city itself, including Southwark. And they just can't keep an eye on this. And so what he does is he says, right, from now on, there's going to be a new system of legal keys and there's 24 of them. And they run on the North Bank of the Thames, running from the east to the west. They begin at the Tower. There's 24 of them and they go as far as Queen Hythe. Now, Queen Hythe might not mean an awful lot to... Uh, people listening to this. So if you walk along modern day London on the North Bank and you walk just beyond um, London Bridge heading westwards, you will come to what looks like a harbour, which is Queen Hyde. And this is the the footprint of the medieval uh, wharf, which is established uh, in the reign of Henry I. And the reason it looks like a harbour is that people were able to build either side of it so that basically the the embankment of the Thames was pushed out into the river on either side, and you've got the footprint of that, and it looks like a harbour. And these legal keys go as far as that. And the incredible thing about them is that the the short frontage of these legal keys, so uh, it, it was 2,000 feet, and before doing this podcast, I did a little check, and that's around 610 metres. It's very, very short distance. And another interesting thing is that they go up to 
but they don't include Queen Hyde, which shows that Queen Hyde is completely redundant. So uh, in Henry I's reign, when Queen Hyde gets going, it is the main wharf in the Port of London. But by this time, it's dead. And um, what we can do is we can follow these legal keys up. So you begin um, just beyond the tower and you walk westward. So you're walking up the river. And the first one you would come to, the most easterly of these, was Galley Key, which was, um, as the name might suggest, was originally for loading logs, but long lost that function. And then you come to two slightly unusual ones. You come to Old Wall Key and Custom House Key. And I say these are unusual because one of the things that Paul does is he buys these wharves for the crown. All the rest of the wharves along the river are leasehold and they're privately held, but these two are bought by the crown. And we don't quite know what he was up to, uh, but it looks as though this was the beginnings of some grander plan for crown control, perhaps of the the riverbank, which never, never really got anywhere. And you might have thought, well, if these keys are owned by the crown, they're going to be better looked after than the other keys. But we've got lots of contemporaries complaining about them both. Old Wall Key was one of the keys that was made of wood. A lot of them are still wooden, and there are lots of complaints about it being decayed at this time. And then Custom House itself, uh, Paul spends a lot of money on. He builds Custom House. Um, I was saying earlier how great these maps are as sources for how things look, but unfortunately the various visual sources for the Custom House vary, so we don't actually know what the Custom House precisely looked like, but it was a brick-built building. And there the complaints about the key, which is stone-fronted this time, but people complain about it being too far from the far away from the river. So at low tide, it's very difficult for small boats um, to actually use it because the, the, the water's not deep enough. Anyway, you progress um, on that side of the river and you come up to uh, London Bridge where you come to the 20th key, which is uh, Fresh Wharf. And Fresh Wharf is for where there was a market for fish and eels. So this is one of the keys where fish and eels are unloaded. And then finally, once you get beyond the bridge, there are uh, four more. And within these four, one of them is the steel yard, which is the, the base of the Hanseatic merchants, the German merchants in London. And the last one is Three Cranes Wharf. And this is obviously an old name, but if you look closely on the um, two maps mentioned earlier, you can see little details of uh, a crane. And you still can go to the Three Cranes pub. And and the, the thing, the, the big dividing line here on the river, which we've alluded to briefly already, is the bridge. And you were telling me, Hazel, that there is good evidence um, that the bridge was still operable, i.e. still being open fairly late in the 15th century. Yes. Um, Many people don't realise that there was a drawbridge on the medieval London Bridge. And this was our only bridge in London that crossed the River Thames. The drawbridge was raised to allow ships that were too large to go underneath its arches. And it was also quite handy when you had hostile mobs coming towards the bridge intending to cross it and therefore entering the city. So you could pull the drawbridge up and protect your city that way. It was in 1497 where the drawbridge on London Bridge was deemed too poor condition and needed to be secured in place. However, in 1500, Henry VII decided he wanted his royal bark to be able to sail upstream. And so carpenters were paid to work throughout the night. um, So the drawbridge would open up for him. 
Um, so that that would indicate that they the, the big ships have the possibility of um, going up river. However, I would guess that perhaps the bother of opening it was a discouragement to them. This probably explains why there are only four keys further up the river from from the four legal keys that is further up the um, further up from the bridge itself. Yeah, it was in 1577 that the stone drawbridge tower was so dilapidated that they demolished it. And that's when the heads of the traitors that were on the tower were then moved from the city side of the bridge to the Southwark side. Oh, OK. And so when that happens, the bridge can no longer open. Yeah, well, I'm kind of guessing that the, the drawbridge had all of its mechanisms for lifting mechanisms in the tower as well. Okay, um, talking about this sort of raises the question: What actually happened uh, upriver then? And um, I was saying that the the legal keys run for um, two thousand feet um, up from the tower. The rest of the um, Thames side within the city of London was populated by by wharves, but those wharves were used for uh, inland trade. So they're they're basically for products going up and down. Uh, the River Thames itself, but not to do with overseas trade. Yeah, that that would make sense then, wouldn't it? Yeah, and one other final thing to say about the the, the river um, in its entire length. Um, we're we're talking about trade, but on that on those maps are sort of small boats going, and we should mention that the the river is an extremely busy uh, place for traffic. Um, lots of people being ferried across the river. And one of the things you can see on the maps are stairways going down to the uh, river itself. And a lot of these stairways survive and they're for people to gain access to the uh, boats to uh, taxi them across to the other side. It it might be worth looking at um, what the trades in Tudor London consisted of and also the role that it played in England's economy as a whole. Well, one of the extraordinary things about this period is how London completely dominates England's trade. So in the Middle Ages, the outports, which are the ports which aren't London, had been of some significance, but they are completely eclipsed by this period. And in Elizabeth's reign, um, probably London accounts for about 90% of exports by volume, so absolutely huge. And there are several reasons for this dominance. One is that London, obviously, is is, is the largest town. It dominates the national economy. Um, as a result of this, it accounts for about 70% of wine imports. Uh, talking of the wine imports, you've got a lot of aristocrats, nobles, and you've got the court uh, spending a considerable amount of time in London. So they're obviously one source for um, the consumption of luxury goods. Um, London has much larger financial uh, capacity than any other place in England. It's got debt to market and it's got um, fairly sophisticated corporate structures. It's got the larger dock houses and warehouses. It's got the sailors and captains. But the crucial element of London's dominance is all to do with cloth. And it's all to do with English broadcloth, uh, which is, by this date, the far most important export. And the big picture here is that at the end of the 14th century, the English begin producing broadcloth at scale and begin to export it. And prior to this date, England had largely exported raw wool. It's not just broadcloth. They they also export other cloths, and in particular, kerseys, which are a, a lightweight, fairly coarse woolen cloth. But the main thing is broadcloth. And broadcloth, if people aren't familiar with it, if you think of 
18th and 19th century uniforms in a museum, whether they're naval or, or military, that is broadcloth. And if you picture that, you'll, you'll, you'll get immediately the, the selling points of broadcloth because it's a very... Well, it's quite a heavy cloth, but it's very, very hard wearing and is weather resistant. And what happens with it is that uh, it's woven into cloth, but it is then finished. It's, it's fooled by being milled with uh, heavy wooden hammers in, in soapy water. And then it's allowed to shrink. And what this does is it brings the yarns in all very, very close together, uh, creating this rather heavy cloth. Uh, and you can't see the weave in, in broadcloth. It, it's got a kind of, uh, um, I, think they, I think they use the phrase, a blind surface to it or a blind face to the cloth, so you can't see the, the weaves in it. Um, and there was this, this market takes off. I, it's just enormous. And the main source of demand for uh, exports of broadcloth are Central Europe. So it's going into uh, places like Germany, modern Germany, modern Poland. Um, and these areas of demand are fed by areas around the Rhine Delta. But what's crucial is that in the 15th century, the merchant adventurers who have a monopoly on the export of this cloth, so they're like a guild, but a guild that has um, is dealing with an overseas trade rather than with a, a, a domestic economic function. They settle their mart, i.e. where they want to um, sell their cloth at Antwerp, and then the other extraordinary thing about the, the history of broadcloth is that it leads to this very brief period when Antwerp absolutely becomes the largest commercial centre in the north of Europe. So before Antwerp's brief rise to glory, um, Bruges had been the main centre, um, but uh, the people running Bruges had been a bit hostile to English broadcloth. Basically, they didn't want competition to their own domestic markets. Uh, but Antwerp was accommodating. Um, and the English mart for broadcloth gets established there. And on the back of that, Antwerp then attracts in a whole load of other things as well. And one of the things that Antwerp is doing is it's becoming a centre for most of the imports that go the other way into London. But it also becomes a big commercial centre for uh, other parts of Europe as well. And England, it's odd, the English economy, in the sense that it's dominated by the production of broadcloth, but it's not exclusively that. So England's also, uh, as I mentioned, exporting curses, it's exporting wool, and then it's exporting uh, a limited range of uh, raw materials, things like um, tin in particular, but also uh, things like uh, leather. But essentially, uh, England's exports absolutely dominated by broadcloth. It's a kind of one product uh, economy. And then on the other side, it's importing a huge range of goods. And these come largely, then not exclusively, uh, from Antwerp. And I'm saying that Antwerp's position as a great financial centre is brief. So it's from the roughly from the late 15th to the late 16th centuries. And what happens is that the English relations with Spain go downhill as a result of the Reformation, but also the Dutch Revolt. And particularly they go downhill when the English start intervening on the Dutch side in the Dutch Revolt. And then Antwerp itself 
becomes a victim of the Dutch revolt because the Dutch uh, shut off the river Scheldt on which uh, Antwerp stands, and that is the absolute end of Antwerp. Uh, so it reaches its apogee in the 1550s and then goes into decline, but it's still of enormous importance, uh, uh, huge importance at the beginning of uh, Elizabeth's reign. And London imported quite a bit of wine, didn't we? We imported lots of things. So um, the but wine, yes, wine was the most important of the um, imports. And uh, saying what a great source Paulet's reforms are, uh, one of them, one product of his reforms is the production of the Queen's books, which are later known as the Port Books. And these are produced from 1565 onwards. And they're basically accounts of the uh, customs. So they list the uh, ship's name, the tonnage of the ship, the master's or captain's name, the port of origin of the ship and the port from which it sailed, and then it lists what they're carrying. And these are really an unparalleled um, source. That no other, I don't think any other country has anything like them. Unfortunately, they're not complete for most of it, but for two years, they are complete. And for one of the years, 1567 to 68, the port book has been edited by the London Record Society, and it was edited by Brian Dietz in 1972. And this is a, a, it's a brilliant book. It's, it's so interesting. But also, uh, Dietz's edits are fantastic as well. So he, he goes through a lot of the data and puts them into... Uh, and appendices and basically the, this is a record of all the native trade so it doesn't include alien merchants but native trade includes the Hanseatic merchants the Germans who were privileged merchants and one of their great privileges was that they had that they paid the same customs rates as English merchants uh, one might add that they're incredibly important but they're also widely hated um, and you, you were saying um, that wine was the most important Dietz analyzes the value of all, all the imports. You can see this appendix, he's got the total value. And the largest coming in was wine, which accounts for 10.5% of the total value of the imports. And the next largest one I think is interesting is linen, uh, which comes in a very close second at 9.5%. So huge demand for linen. And linen is produced primarily in Flanders, but also comes uh, from northern France. Um, we at London Guided Walks have a particular interest in eels. Um, if anybody doesn't know why I'm saying that, there's an earlier, which I thought very interesting podcast on the eel boats in the Thames, about which I knew absolutely nothing before you made the uh, podcast. Very interesting subject. It is so interesting. Um, so anybody who hasn't listened to it, it is episode 83, Dutch Eels in Medieval London. And that's when I talk with the lovely John Wyatt Greenley about the Dutch trade of eels in medieval London. Yeah, so uh, anyway, I was just about to say that um, the, the total value of imports in, in, in the book for the this year, 1567 to 68, was the total value was 643,000. And of that total, eels, both fresh and salted, accounted for 1,500 pounds worth. And they would have been um, unloaded at Fresh Wharf, which is the one that we were talking earlier on. And to give a kind of picture of how uh, fascinating this book is, um, Dietz, in one of his appendices, he provides a list of all the goods that were enumerated in these lists, and he does this alphabetically. And some of them go on for miles and miles, but I thought I'd just do the letter E. And I've chosen the letter E simply because it's one of the shortest, uh, but also it, it happens to cover the uh, the word eel. <laughs> um, and uh, under E, the listing goes as follows. It goes ear picks, eight cloth, eels, various kinds, 
um, and epithyme, which is used in medicine. I think the modern name for it is dodder. And then the final one is ermine. Um, now, a couple of those need a little bit of elaboration. Eclocloth, cloth, which is written with a double E, so I think they might have well said eclocloth. Uh, Eclo was one of the main production sites for linen in, in Flanders. And then the eels are interesting because they're divided up. They're divided up into um, dull, pimper, shaft and stub eels. And my understanding uh, is that nobody has any idea what these words mean. Oh, well, I might be able to help you there, actually. Really? <laughs> yes, because I have a brand new book and I'm very excited because I think this is its time to shine. Uh, it's called Sources of London English, Medieval Thames Vocabulary, and it's written by Laura Wright. And in here, she has um, excuses of the name of fish brought to London by boat between about 1270 and 1500. And guess what's included? Uh, eels. How did you guess? Yeah, so uh, first one that she comes up with um, is conger, um, the large marine eel now occasionally found in the Thames, and I didn't know that. Conger eels in the Thames. Then kemp eel, which you didn't mention, but that's apparently a red eel. And then a pimpin eel, which is a type of small eel. But then, ha, 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 your shaft eel comes in. And oh. that is a type of middle-sized eel. Long, slender rod and arrow shaft. There you go. And she has got some um, some Latin, which I won't, won't embarrass myself with doing. But basically, the trans English translation is, when they arrive at the city aforesaid, they bring the various sorts of their eels from the largest, are called stubble eels, some from the middling are called shaft eels. Oh, well, well done. I know. I'm rather pleased with myself out there. So uh, uh, I think uh, I think we're uh, starting to get to know uh, eels rather well in London. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, there you go. My new book. The the other thing about the these lists, uh, one of the apart from listing the the goods. Obviously, the ships are listed, and they're very interested. And most of them, and as I mentioned earlier, they they mention the tonnage, and most of them are about forty or sixty tons. And to give an impression, we can actually give an, quite a good impression of what that looked like, because on the south bank of the Thames today, there is a reproduction of the Golden Hind. And I, from memory, I think this reproduction ship was made in the 1970s, and they've been restoring it lately. That had a capacity that had, that had a tonnage of 150, so 150 for the Golden Hind, and about 40 or 60 for these other things. And I think inevitably, both you and I walk quite frequently by the Golden Hind, and. I'm a bit nervous about saying this in case people who are experts in uh, naval architecture come back at me for my generalities and lack of knowledge. But whenever I walk past it, I always have the thought of I really wouldn't like to cross the channel in that boat. And yet, of course, it's famous because uh, Drake sailed around the globe in it. Um, but so anyway, most of these ships are quite small. But one of them actually stood out in, in this list is the Barbara of Venice. So most of the most of the ships are coming from, from Antwerp. So this is an unusual one, sailing all the way from Venice. And that was 400 tonnes. So most of them are 40 or 60. This, 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 this ship from Venice, 400 tonnes. Um, and then it lists the, the masters, Nicholas de Corsolo, and uh, the, the main cargo on that one was, was butts of wine. 
This is somewhat of a practical question then, Ian. Um, How were the customs actually raised? Well, you've got to have a fairly, in theory, effective system for collecting this because people have got quite big incentives to try uh, and avoid it. And Customs House, um, they employed uh, men known as waiters or servers uh, who went aboard a ship as soon as it uh, dropped anchor. And they required from the master a certificate specifying the, the ship's name, its details, and a bill of lading for the whole cargo. And from these, the, the um, waiters could have a quick look at the cargo, make sure that it sort of tallied with what the, the ship's captain was saying. And then that was passed on to the officials at Customs House. And then the officials who actually collect the revenue took over and there were always two waiters and two collectors uh, actually um, involved in collecting the the customs and the reason you have two officials is that it makes collusion uh, that much harder and um, so you've got sort of two books uh, to be well in fact you've got a total of four books you've got the the two collectors books you've got the two waiters books and then these are all looked at by uh um, the man in charge the controller who then is responsible for handing over the money and also accounts to the exchequer um and um there were within this system that there, there are two big worries from the, the authorities one is smuggling and the other is corrupt officials um siphoning off the money and it's very difficult to really get a picture of how much revenue was lost because by the nature it won't appear um, in the records however we can make some general comments first of all contemporaries were always complaining um, about fraud and negligence from the customs officials secondly the officials and we're talking about royal officials in london uh, were not paid very much And then finally, there are lots of references to blind keys, by which people mean that the customs house really didn't have a great deal of visibility on the keys that were furthest away from it. On the positive side, however, as we've already mentioned, the the actual distance of the legal keys is quite limited, 2,000 feet. And then historians are rather reduced to generalities on this. And one of the comments, which which I like, I'm not sure how helpful it is, but is to point out that in the big sweep of historical things, 5% rate of customs is not that big. Uh, When we think about smuggling, we think about the 18th century when it's a huge, huge uh, huge industry and then the customs on certain goods were 35 percent, so it might not have been worth it um also london merchants had their reputations to think about these are men who whose uh, credit and standing in the community rely on their probity they also need to do accounts just to run their businesses and they need to keep on the good side of government as uh, as well and Finally, we can see point to this system of having two officials probably made it harder to collude. And the the, the examples that we have of fraud um, come from officials who have been caught for fraud, but they've been caught for fraud after doing the books. Now, this might be significant because it might suggest that before they actually draw up their their books, their descriptions of the goods. It's very difficult for them to indulge in fraud. Anyway, one case is of a man named William Bird, who is caught in the 1560s, and uh, he took his cut 
after compiling his accounts. And then he then tried to make his handwriting look illegible, and he actually tried to erase uh, some of the accounts to make them illegible, but, he, but he, he, he was caught. And as I say, for smuggling, well, who knows? But this, I, I guess the assumption is it's probably easier to do it out of London than in London. And one interesting thing is that we have this elaborate system, which I've described, uh, on the, in the outports, they didn't bother with this. They just farmed the customs, which means that uh, somebody leased the customs. They paid the, the, the crown a sum up front, and then they are responsible for collecting the customs. And obviously, that kind of privatizes uh, the collection of revenue, and it gives an incentive to the person with the farm uh, to uh, look after, to, to make, try and make sure that smuggling and fraud are limited, and it, it, it's on their own shoulders. So, we, I think a lot of people, when they think about, when they read about tax farming which becomes very widespread in the 17th century. They think, what a curious primitive system. But actually, it made quite a lot of sense um, for the outports, uh, at least. I think it might be worth discussing who was actually doing the trading. I mean, was it companies, guilds, individuals, or was it a mix? Yeah, well, I, I think it's uh, it's a mix. So at the heart of it is individuals, um, but they are largely operating within some kind of corporate structure. So that is to say that it's individuals putting up the capital at risk, taking all the risks. Um, but they belong to wider structures, which provided them with important means of support. And the most important of these organisations was the merchant adventurers, so like a guild, it was monopoly, but like the guilds, um, this also this structure conferred uh, numerous benefits, particularly on its members, but also on other people. And the merchant adventurers, one of their main things is that if you, all the merchants are united together in one company, they speak with one voice. And the merchant adventurers are able to act on behalf of its members and negotiate these privileges with Antwerp, which is the most important one. Um, but they could also lobby the English crown, which was important. Um, they regulated their members' behaviour. So if merchants were a bit naughty in a foreign port, like getting drunk or, or something like that, the, the, the merchant adventurers would take action on that, and, that, and they could ultimately expel members. Um, and they the, the company structure itself is useful for the crown because it means that the English crown has a means of enforcement, of controlling uh, its merchants abroad. And essentially, this is what's known as a regulated company, um, and others are um, created on its model. So there's also the Spanish company, and the most important of these was the Eastland company, which, which, which dealt with the Baltic. And regulated company, as the title implies, the... The company is like a guild, it's providing a structure, but it's the merchants individually who are, uh, as I said, putting their capital at risk and undertaking voyages and undertaking business. Now, it's also at this period that you get the beginnings of joint stock companies. And in a joint stock company, merchants uh, invest, they pool their capital, and they're also um, granted limited liability. So if... if um, if the venture fails, the creditors uh, can't go after all of their wealth. They can only go after that bit which was invested in the joint stock company. And these are seen as uh, very important from what's going to happen later. But actually, in this period, they, they aren't that they aren't that significant. So the, the the examples of them: the Russia Company, which are formed in, is formed in 1555, and the Levant Company in 1581. And they are as the 
two geographical destinations imply. They're places that are a long way away. They're too risky, really, for one or two merchants um, where there are limited diplomatic ties. But both of these companies soon abandoned the joint stock company, and basically they've become like the regulated companies that we've been talking about. And then finally, at the very end of Elizabeth's reign, 1600, you get the formation of the East India Company, uh, which will become very important, but only in the course of the 17th century. And then in addition to being part of perhaps the merchant adventurers or possibly one of these other regulated companies, the merchants would uniformly belong to guilds. Now, the guilds might by this stage have been involved in the trade for which they originally founded, but they could as well could just as well not have been. Um, and again, th these provide advantages to merchants. They're, they're useful as a means of networking, securing a powerful ally to have a corporate body acting for you in case of disputes. They're a mechanism for uh, lobbying. And the uh, indications from um, the lay subsidy in 1541, uh, a tax imposed by the Crown, suggests that the most prosperous companies at this time were the uh, drapers, goldsmiths, merchant tailors, fishmongers and vintners. Makes sense, doesn't it? I don't want anyone accusing of us of being grimace, Ian. So when talking about London, obviously the city of London is important. Uh, but what about the happenings downriver? Well, what's happening is that the, in a way, London is becoming beginning, just beginning its kind of expansion. And the, the most important thing, uh, which is related to London as a port, but not really related to commerce, is Henry VIII and the establishment of the dockyards, the Royal Dockyards at Woolwich and Deptford. And um, this has given increased momentum at the, the, towards the end of Henry's reign uh, in 1545, when the combined forces of Spanish, Spain and France attempt to invade England and they cause quite a lot of damage to the Isle of Wight and, and the south coast. And this sort of gives the impetus, further impetus for the need to, to build ships. And at this period, uh, Deptford is the largest shipyard uh, in England. And, and part of the reason for the development of them on the Thames is, is, is it's a lot safer than the south coast where the, the largest um, dock, dockyards have been before that. Um, also, you're getting the, in the 16th century as a whole, not just Elizabeth's reign, but you're getting an increasing growth of traffic on the river. And uh, at the beginning of the 16th century, uh, 1514, I think, Trinity House is formed. And Trinity House is responsible for uh, pilotage on the Thames. And by the mid-16th century, so getting towards Elizabeth's reign, they've also taken over responsibility for things like the provision of beacons, buoys, um, the supply of ballast, conservation of the river, which make basically essentially making it sure that it's still um, navigable. Um, and you also get the, the, the authorization of the Thames watermen. So in 1555, there's an act which says that eight watermen are um, to supervise the Thames all the way from Greenwich to Windsor to prevent accidents and to ensure minimum dimensions for boats used for carrying passengers on the Thames. So the watermen are the, 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 the taxi men of the day. So um, outside the confines of the city, you're getting, um, you're, you're getting increased activity on the river. And with these dockyards, you're getting the gradual expansion of London and all the trades that go with, with, with shipbuilding as well. So uh, in itself, an important development. 
Fantastic. Who knew the Port of London in Tudor London would be so interesting? Thank you, Ian. My pleasure. Don't forget, we are available for private tours as well as our scheduled guided walk. So just check that out on our website, which also has periods of London history, including Tudor London history. And you can check that out at londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash history forward slash Tudor and see all the related content for then. And that also gives you the opportunity to sign up to be the first to know when my brand new book, Royal Tudor Palaces of London, is published. That's all for now. See you next time.